Sometimes I feel like that middle acorn. So why did we show you a video of acorns sprouting? No, it wasn't just to make Gene smile. Um, how do you break open an acorn? Well, there's a couple of ways to do it. One way is you can smash it between two rocks, and then you end up with the crumbs of an acorn. Or you can set it on top of the ground in the right conditions, and it will break open on its own. In both cases, it is broken, but only one case leads to life. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to break, but to fulfill the law. Much like the acorn fulfilled its purpose by sprouting into a tree. What, and what's the difference there? What is it that God is getting at it in all of this? What is it about the law that is helping us understand that the law doesn't lead us, doesn't give us salvation, but it leads us in a pathway that can lead to salvation? We're going to get into that as we look at the, the beginning of chapter 5 in Matthew. So if you've got your Bibles, if you'll go ahead and turn to Matthew 5, we'll start to look there. Um, what, what I want you to see is that life comes from death. Life comes from death. For an acorn or any seed to, begin, to, to come to life and start to sprout and grow, for life to come to it, it must first die, which means that the seed, the acorn, falls from the tree. It has life in it. But it lays on the ground, it dries out, it dies. It has to die before it can become able to come to life. Now, God could have made it work a whole lot of different ways than that. He could have done it any way he wanted. He chose to do it that way. Now, I don't know why, but I suspect one reason might be because of the parallels with the spiritual life and that he wants to surround us in, our, in nature. He wants to surround us with physical pictures and manifestations of spiritual truths. I think that's why Jesus used a lot of agriculture and a lot of his stories, nature, life. And so as we look at what will be the beginning of a sermon that Jesus preached, I want you to real, recognize that these are pretty profound statements that we're going to be reading. Okay, these are foundational to Christianity and to what it means to know and follow Christ. So... Um, not that you don't pay attention or listen or take any of this seriously. I know you do. But sometimes it's hard to know, especially if you're new to the Scriptures, which passages are, I hesitate to say, more important, right? Because it's all Scripture. It's all God-breathed. It's all worthy. But it's, sometimes there's some passages that are just more applicable to helping us in our faith, especially in the early stages of our faith. Or in, in really, a lot of times, just understanding the whole thing. Because... I know, I don't know about you, but me, for me, coming up on all the years I grew up going to church, and every Sunday you get a little bit of Scripture, it'd be kind of like taking just an, or, just an ordinary book and just reading a page a week, but not in order. That would be kind of a weird to, way to read a book, wouldn't it? And yet, we read this book that way if all we do is come on a Sunday and, and hear a little bit. And that's why it's important that we read it and that we read it in order or not necessarily in the order in which it's in the book, but we read it purposefully and with direction and with understanding. And, and so, you know, some of that we don't have. We don't all have that knowledge, and, and that's part of growing and learning and, and all of that. Well, Jesus is giving us foundations to his kingdom in these, what we call the Beatitudes. The blessed are the, 
and fill in the blank. So we're going to go through those today. And, and my hope here is that we answer the question, what, are, what, uh, what do the blessings of the kingdom look like? That's really what today's about. So I'm going to explain to you using these Beatitudes what the blessings of the kingdom look like. But the ultimate blessing of the kingdom is, is the acorn showing us life. Not just life here and now, but life abundant. And if I have abundant life, I don't ever want to let go of that. So life abundant forever is what really we're getting at. And, and the bottom line, if you want to just check out, find a pillow and, and camp out, the bottom line is this. To get that life, you must die. Okay? And, and on one hand, we can go, okay, yeah, I get that. And on the other hand, if we're not careful, we can just be so callous to that that we never really grasp the, the meaning of that, the, rest, the, the heart behind that. Because I don't know about you, but I'm never looking to die. I'm never looking to surrender anything. And yet, that's what is required. I love the, the, the stories that Ted Decker writes. I've referred to the Circle series a lot. If you haven't read it yet, you need to get this one, of, one of those and start reading through. It's really literally four books, and the last one ends where the first one starts. That's why it's called the Circle series. Black, red, white, and green are the four titles of the books. But in there, he, um, he oh, I lost it. Why did I go there? Um, he talks about... I can't, I'll, I'll, I'll get it in a minute. But he, write, he does a really good job of explaining uh, a lot of this in ways that you've not seen it. He comes at it, the kingdom, in a, in a, from a direction that you're not used to seeing because he likes to write about the story, but in ways that you don't expect. And I don't, I'm sorry, I hate when I do that. Here we go. So we're going to start into the Beatitudes. The first couple of verses, we're going to have these on the screen for you. But Jesus is coming out. Remember now, last week we ended with Jesus doing three things. And this is what we said to follow Jesus. These are the three things that we would be doing, should be doing in some form or fashion. Teaching in the synagogues. Not that you and I are going to be teaching in any synagogues anytime soon. But there are some we could go to. I just don't know if they'd let us in. Uh, preaching to the crowds outside the walls of religion. And then healing or miracles. Okay? And all these miracles are designed to reinforce the credibility of the teaching and the proclaiming. Okay? And, and when, when you have a loved one who is healed or you are healed and, and it's like, I don't know how to explain that, but I'm truly healed and I'm, you know, I'm so excited about that, you're probably going to go, what's he going to do next? Okay, at least that's what I think some of these folks were doing because uh, thousands of them show up to see what he's going to do next. And what does Jesus do next? He teaches which reminds us that the biggest deal is not the miracles. The biggest deal is the message. Okay? The miracles point to the message. Okay? The mission is to get the message out. And the means to helping people believe the message is miracles. Or miracles. And I don't think that's changed today. Or at least I don't think it should have. Okay? So with that, let's, ju let's jump in here. Verse 1 and 2. When, now, when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on a mountainside and sat down, okay? The mountainside, many think, is on the, kind of overlooking the Sea of Galilee, which was a giant lake where a lot of folks got their, their food, their fish to sell and to eat. And, and sitting down, that seems a little strange when you're going to speak to thousands of people and you don't have a, a microphone, but that's the way rabbis taught. In fact, really, when you think of authority, that's kind of the way authority speaks, other than our, our country, Western ways are a little different. Um, they stand at a podium, but you think about it, 
the rabbis would sit and talk. And you look at kings back in history. Kings sat on the throne while everyone else bowed or kneeled or, or just stood before them. But they were always elevated, but they were still sitting. So sitting is kind of a, a posture of, of uh, power and authority. Okay? Jesus is, is displaying that he is a king. Okay? Even though he doesn't look like the king they want or expect, maybe he's not even calling himself that, but he speaks as one with authority because he has authority. Everything Jesus said was scripture. Everything he said, whether we got it written down in, as actual scripture or whether he was just saying something to somebody in passing, it was all that good. Um, he, he, was just, he just always spoke truth. He only spoke what the Father told him. So he's sitting... And then it says his disciples came to him, the 12, and he began to teach them. Now, it could, it's possible that his disciples could also mean beyond the 12. Remember, there's a time, we'll see in Matthew 10, he sends out the 70. And we're like, who are these? So we don't get to hear much about them. Does that include the 12? Is that in addition to the 12? Did they not make the cut or not make the first cut? Who knows? We don't know, other than lots of people followed Jesus. Okay? There's, there's the 12. So... I don't know. Most people just picture this the 12. It could have been more than that. I don't think he has 70 yet. So I don't know that it's, it's them. And this is what he opens with. And for the next, the rest of chapter 5, all of chapter 6, and all of chapter 7, Jesus is going to lay out what does it look like to be a part of my kingdom. That's what the whole three chapters are about. What is my kingdom about? What does it look like to be a part of that kingdom? How do you become a part of that kingdom? And what do they do? Specifically today, we're going to focus on what are those kingdom blessings that he talks about? Who gets those? How do we get those? What are they? And he's going to lay those out right here called the Beatitudes. Um, he says, I'm going to read it and then we'll come back through it. Let's just read through it so we hear it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, okay? And, and some people believe that those eight are the, those are the Beatitudes. Some say this next one is an additional one. Some say it's just, we're moving on. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That's the point. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I'm always humbled by the fact that I get to preach and teach your word, but today especially I feel um, whatever it is I'm feeling that just makes this feel that much, I just feel that much less worthy. So, so Lord, I know that it, it's not about me and I just want to be out of the way. I pray that that people would just leave being in awe of Jesus today. That they would have a better picture of what you're like, what you look like, how you are, and who you call us to be. 
Lord, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear what it is we need to see and hear and understand and comprehend and believe that we might receive the blessings that are, re that are laid out here for those who are in the kingdom, those who have been born from above, those who have recognized their need for a Savior and have responded to the call to be saved. Help us to understand and also be able to explain to others what we understand. Give us the courage to do that. Help us to recognize that in the scheme of our lives, there's nothing more important. Help me communicate this well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's break it down. First of all, the word blessed. Some translations say happy. It's way more than happy. Okay? Happy is kind of like the training wheels version of it. Okay? It's okay. Blessed, happy is good. But it's really a, more of a, a, a sense of God's divine favor on you. Okay? Now, there's two sets of words for blessed. When I say sets, I mean Hebrew and Greek, Hebrew and Greek. One word for blessed means uh, it's like when you pray for God to bless you. Okay? Sometimes we say that before we eat. I want to pray, I'm going to say the blessing. Okay? We're asking for God to bless us. This is not that. This is the word that means, this is pointing to something you already, you potentially already have. It, it's, a, it's the favor, divine favor of God that one has. So there's a, there's a difference. One you're asking for, one you have. Okay? Now, not everybody has this blessing, right? But potentially you do, depending on if this is describing you or not. Because what you're going to see here is a series of beatitudes, which are basically things saying, you are blessed if you are in the kingdom by these things. These things are for you. They are part of being, a, they are what it means to be part of the kingdom, to be in the kingdom of God. Um, something that is still, I'm still processing that is kind of new to me uh, about the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven because he's writing to Jews and Jews would never say God. It's too sacred. And so he uses, that's his audience, the Jews. So he says kingdom of heaven. Same thing. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is not heaven. Okay, it includes that, but it's bigger than that. Okay, because what Jesus is saying by saying this here, he's saying the kingdom of God is here. It is at hand. Mark 1.15, repent and believe the good news that the kingdom of God is here. But it's not fully here yet. Because Uvalde, Texas, right? We know it's not fully here. There's, there's too much to grieve. There's too much evidence that the kingdom is not fully in play because the king is not fully in charge. Well, he is, but he has not set aside all competition. He's allowing things to play out for his purposes. The kingdom of God is the realm in which God do has dominion over. And even though Satan is running around doing his thing with his dominion, his demons and his, his armies, it's only because God is allowing it for a season for a purpose. So, when he's laying this out, he's talking about something that is a current reality, but we're not seeing it in full. In fact, it's very subtle. And it really is only seen when God's people act accordingly, when we reflect what it looks like to be kingdom citizens like it's described here and the rest of six, seven, 5, 6, and 7. So let's break it down. What do these phrases mean? So it's going to start off with, 
a, a person who is being blessed, and then it's going to tell us what that person has already been blessed with. Okay? So he's going to say, here's who, and here's the blessing. Okay? Here's what it's not saying. And I'm going to repeat this because this is not, we don't think this way. It is not saying, if you do this, then you will be blessed by this. It is not a conditional if-then, even though you, you kind of want to read it that way. Because we like to earn our salvation. We like to earn our religion. We like to earn our keep. And God says, you can't. You don't have enough of anything. And he'll point that out in detail here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, kingdom of heaven. I want to be a kingdom citizen. I am a kingdom citizen by grace through faith, not because I deserve it, but by God's grace through his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, and if you know Christ, then you are too. You are a citizen of the kingdom here and now, whether you like it or not. <laughs> okay, and believe me, you, you, you should like it. Not that it's always easy and pleasant. Okay, what is this poor in spirit business? That doesn't sound real enticing. It doesn't sound like something I want to be. But yet, it says if you are blessed by being in the kingdom, it is because you are poor in spirit. Maybe not consistently. I know I'm not. But there was a moment in time and probably a pattern in your life that now is revealed if you were to watch, we were to follow you around and watch you. If you're in Christ, there's a pattern in your life where you recognize that I'm lacking in, a, in an area that's very significant in the eyes of God. I am lacking in the area of pride because I can't get into the, hev into the kingdom of heaven if I have pride. In other words, if I come to, to the Lord and say, hey, I got a great family name, I'm, I'm in, right? My, my granddaddy was like the, the pastor of pastors, and I go, if you trace me back, I go to the apostle Paul, and I got all these pedigree and, and credentials and all this, and God's like, not enough. Well, 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 I serve in my church. I'm always serving. I'm always there. I mean, everybody always turns to me, turn to me when they need something. Not enough. Well, you don't understand. I come from, I, I'm, this, I'm the right race, okay? I'm like from the chosen people of God. Nope, not going to get you there. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm holy. I mean, I am holy, holy, pure. Oh, yes, I get up singing holy, holy, holy. And I go to bed singing some other hymn, I'm sure. I, I'm, I'm worthy. Nope, nope. You say, when we come to God with any ideas that we have anything that qualifies us other than, well, there's nothing, right? There's nothing that we can bring that says, I'm qualifying for the kingdom of heaven. And I know that probably most of us are kind of going in our head, duh, okay? And yet... Do you ever catch yourself feeling entitled? Like you're having a bad week or maybe just a bad day, okay? And you're like, Lord, I was at church Sunday. I even gave. I, I, I served. I gave up my seat for somebody. And it's almost like, therefore, you owe me, right? And we don't do that overtly or out loud, hopefully, but in our minds, I think sometimes we probably find ourselves going, hey, you owe me a little bit here because I'm, I've got something that I brought. To the, mm -mm. We're spiritually, our spiritual condition is so poor, you could call us spiritually homeless. We come to the door of the kingdom, and we want in, and we knock on the gate, and we say, Lord, I want to be part of your kingdom, and I have nothing to offer, but I just need your mercy. 
and he either lets us in or he doesn't. And none of us deserve to get inside. None of us. Okay? Poor in spirit. Kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Okay, now it starts to sound like future. Now it starts to sound conditional, but it's not. Don't, don't fall for that. What does it mean to mourn? Mourn is like grieving. If someone dies, we go to the funeral and we grieve. We mourn. And depending on how close we were to them depends on how much we mourn or grieve. I've seen my children mourn over the death of a pet more than people mourned over people in a funeral, okay? It just depends on what you love and what you're losing, right? It's, it's even more than that, though. I mean, when, you're, when your kids go to college, you, you feel that loss. You feel the vacuum in the house. You feel the... Uh, the, the dynamic change in such a way that there's something that is lost in that, even though it's what we're shooting for, even though it's what we're wanting. Or when you marry them off or whatever, we, there's grieving, and, and it's this sense of loss, right? It's not a good feeling. It's sad. And what, what he's saying here is that there's this mourning there's comfort for that is already yours in Christ Jesus. But what's the mourning? That, what is it that we are mourning? What did Jesus mourn? Jesus was, we're going to see that Jesus was perfect in all of these. He was poor in spirit. He didn't come. He, he emptied himself. We heard Anna read Philippians 2. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. You cannot humble yourself any more than Jesus did. Poor in spirit. But Jesus, what's he mourning over? Right? We've seen him look over the city of Jerusalem and, and weep. What's he weeping over? Brokenness. Some of us have shed tears over Uvalde, Texas in the shooting of those 19 children and the two teachers and there's a gunman who's dead and there's a city that's just in pain, a whole community. Or we've hardened ourselves and said, I don't want to even feel that. I, I, I'm overwhelmed already, right? And we'll get to that. I get that. Right? What is he mourning over? He's mourning over the brokenness in our world. And what caused that brokenness? Sin. Right? The seed of sin started with Adam and Eve, but every single one of us is responsible for the sin in our own lives. No one made us do it. We might have been tempted, but we said, I'm giving in. And so Jesus never sinned, so Jesus didn't have his own sin to mourn, but we do. Do we? I can remember the first time, I'd never, I'd never seen anybody cry over their sin all my years coming up. I'm in my 30s at this point. I'm a youth pastor. I'm a pretty new youth pastor at the time, and I take kids to camp, okay? We're going to do that next week, right? we got a group going. And at the end of one of the night services, God got a hold of me in a way that I emotionally could not handle, and I just, I was a blubbering fool right up there with everyone else on the altar just boohooing. And it was because I came to under, I, I started to feel what God, just a taste of what God feels because of my sin. But I'd never done that before, so I'm just like feeling guilty for feeling guilty and for never feeling guilty enough and for not feeling it like that. And, and, and so it, it wouldn't surprise me if we had people in the room that have never done that before. And I'm not saying that makes me more spiritual. I'm just saying there are times when God breaks through enough to where you actually feel and, and you, you allow yourself 
to, to realize I need to mourn over that because this is horrible. The fact that we have a, war, a, a world that we live in that is as painful as it is is because of people like me who give in to the temptations and sin. I contribute to that every time I sin. So I should be grieving over that. Because God, it says God grieves over my sin. The Holy Spirit grieves every time I sin. And it's not just the outward actions, it's the thoughts in my mind. It's the words that come out of my mouth. It's the things that I don't do that I should do. All of these things grieve the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus was known as the man of sorrows for a reason. Because he too mourned. The the blessing here is that there's comfort. I got to tell you, after that sob fest, I don't know what else to call it, (laughs) I was comforted. Because I knew that even though my sin had caused him great pain, had put Jesus on the cross, had hurt our world in the way it had, I also knew that he loved me and that that wasn't going to change because of my sin. He's faithful. He's merciful. And I needed to hear that and feel that. And you need to know that. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He promises that. And God keeps his promises, doesn't he? He continues, Blessed are those, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Okay, so when we say earth, what do we mean? Do we inherit a bunch of dirt? Do we get the property of our choice? It's like we, we inherit it all. We get it all, really, all of creation is at the end of the day. In this day, they would have thought in terms of the promised land, but it's more than that because it's, it's not just the Jewish nation, it's the nations we inherit all of creation, all of nature, and that's why it doesn't just say land, because you could translate it will inherit the land, but it, it's, it's more comprehensive than that. And, and if you want to go fast forward to the good part, you go to Revelation 21, and you see that we will have a new heaven and a new earth and a new city, and we'll have new bodies, and it'll all be new, and, but it will be similar, we'll recognize it, which is why we say it's a new version of something that we have now, we'll inherit that. But what is the what is the descriptor of a person who is going to inherit? It's someone who is meek. Not something we use. Really not an American word. Really not. Not a popular one. It's a four-letter word in America. Meek does not mean weak. It means power under control. Humble strength. Yeah, that doesn't sound very American, does it? Yep. I'm proud to be an American, right? Military, big on pride. Corporations, big on pride. We're in Pride Month. We're a proud nation. You know? I mean, we're we're so proud spiritually, we're going, I'm so humble and proud of it. Like we don't understand what the word means. Now, when I talk about pride like this, I'm talking about the kind of pride that the Bible's talking about. And I get it. There may be some ways we use that word that may not be as offensive or maybe not even mean what the Bible's getting at when it talks about pride. It's not talking about, man, I made something and I'm really, I'm really pleased with how this turned out. I'm proud of the work I put into this. It's not what we're talking about. It's an attitude that says, I did this on my own with no help. No grace of God wasn't required for me to be able to do this. It's, it's a subtlety, 
but it's profoundly different. Pride that the Bible condemns is, is a pride that says, I got this, okay? You've seen the little yard signs, God's got this, okay? I'm going to put one out that says, I got this. No, I'm not going to do that, right? That would be, that'd be American Christianity, wouldn't it? I got this. God is my co-pilot, because we certainly wouldn't want to give him the wheel. Carrie Underwood notwithstanding, right? Meek, power under control. Think about Philippians 2 again. Jesus, divinely so powerful, he could speak and a universe exists out of nothing, okay? And that power set aside, he still comes with the faith to leverage that, right? He comes and becomes human, but he trusts the Father so fully that he could ask for that. He could say, I want another universe. I want a parallel universe. God, let's create a multiverse, right? He could do that. Some would say he has done that. Maybe. doesn't bother my theology because God can do it. Power under control, though, is the difference between a wildfire and a campfire. You might say a campfire's not very powerful, but man, when you've been hiking all day and it's cold and wet, you want a campfire. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is rightness or justice. Okay, so, sorry social justice movements, but biblical justice preceded you quite a while. Okay? And there is a, a much broader umbrella than your political ideologies, whatever that happens to be. This is not a political statement. This is a statement, a God statement. Justice is a biblical ethic. What does the Lord call upon you, call of you, Micah 6.8? To act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Okay? That's a great summary of the gospel and the message that we are called to follow, to live for and die for. Okay? I want to read a story um, that the author of this book shares, Kenneth Bailey, that describes how this verse really came to life for him. Um, he is, the author actually used this to help study for this. His name, the name of the book is Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. It's a fantastic read. I encourage you to get a copy and read this. It's just, it's very easy to read, and yet he breaks down select passages out of the Bible that are heavily understood better if you understand it through Middle Eastern eyes. And you understand, and, and you and I haven't grown up in a Middle Eastern culture unless, I mean, that anybody that I know anyway. Um, and so there are things that we don't understand about Scripture because we didn't grow up there that, that would open up understanding if we understood that. And so this is just a story. He lived in the Middle East. Uh, quite a while, and this is the story, and I, I'm reading it because it's a little lengthy, but I, I think it does a great job of capturing the essence of this verse. Once in my life, I nearly died of thirst, Kenneth writes. While living in south of Egypt, a group of friends and I traveled deep into the Sahara Desert by camel. Our trek began, the, when our trek began, the temperature was soared to above 110 degrees in the shade. There was no shade. On our way, one goatskin water bag leaked all of its precious contents. With consumption high due to the heat, we ran out of water, and for a day and a half, we pressed on 
while enduring intense thirst. The goal of the excursion was a famous well named Bur Shetun, deep in the desert. Our guide promised us that it was never dry. Ah, but could we survive to reach its life-giving liquid silver? My mouth became completely dry, and eating was impossible because swallowing felt like the rubbing of two pieces of sandpaper together. My vision became blurred, and the struggle to keep moving became harder with each step. We knew that if the well was dry, our armed guards would probably have forcibly seized our three baggage camels and ridden them back to the valley, leaving the rest of us to die. As I staggered on, my mind turned to this verse that we just read, and I knew that I had never sought righteousness with the same single-minded passion that I now gave to the, this quest for water. Yes, we managed to stagger to the well, and it was full of, quote, the wine of God, unquote, as water is named by desert tribesmen in the Middle East. In the process, I learned something of the power of Jesus' language. In the world where water was scarce and travel arduous, his listeners would have known what it meant to, quote, hunger and thirst, unquote, after food and water, and thus could understand what Jesus was saying about an all-consuming passion for righteousness. Yeah, I haven't either. I've never. And it's an ongoing thing, right? The whole time he's hungering and thirsting. More and more and more and more and more. Do we hunger and thirst? It's kind of like the deer pants for water. We, we pursue God like the deer pants for water. It's that, do I pursue righteousness? In this case, righteousness. Okay? So what is righteousness? We need to understand. It's, it's, a, it's rightness. It's justice in the world. It's the right and just acts of God in our world. But it's even more than that. Righteousness is relational. Okay? Even now, some of you know what it's like to not be in a right relationship with somebody right now. You're not in fellowship with them, and you know it. You wouldn't pick up the phone and call them right now if I asked you to. For some of you, it's been a few weeks. For some of you, it's been a few years. For some of you, decades. You're not in a right relationship with that person. You need to reconcile. It may not be possible. They may be gone. Or they may be where you can't find them. Righteousness includes a right relationship with those in our world. And that's not possible, not really, unless we have a right relationship with God. The vertical empowers the horizontal. That's why the first four of the Ten Commandments are all about our relationship with God. And the next six are all about our relationship with people because those two go together. And I don't think it's a coincidence that they make a cross. It is through the cross of Christ, reconciliation is empowered. That's why I say God is always for reconciliation. It's not always possible. But God is always for it. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled, will be satisfied. Okay? That satisfaction is yours. You may not be experiencing it yet, but it is yours because you are someone who is pursuing righteousness. And that is, again, the description of who we're talking about. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy is getting, not getting what you deserve, right? 
you're caught speeding, I-26, obviously at midnight when nobody's on the road because there's no other way you could get up that fast. You get a ticket, you're caught on camera, you're caught on radar, there's witnesses, there's no way you're going to get out of this. You know you're guilty and everybody else does too. You're in court, the judge has an option. You're there, you're, he's like, how do you plead? You say, guilty, would love mercy, but I'm, I'm guilty. And the judge has a way he can show you mercy two different ways. First way is he can just wave it off. Or he could just say, let's reduce it from a $250 fine to $100 and no points on your license. And you're like, yes, awesome. Thank you, Lord. You know, you're, you're, you're ready to go to the Congo for, as a missionary. You're so excited. But that's not how God does mercy, at least not at the cross. What he did was he said, guilty, full weight of punishment on you. And then he took off the robe, and he comes around, and he says, and I'm going to pay the fine for you. I'm going to take the full punishment that you deserve that was just sentenced on you. That justice is going to be poured out on me instead of on thee. And that's what the cross is. It's where that happened. So God does not compromise his justice in his kind of mercy. His kind of mercy costs him personally. Now, we love, love, love getting this kind of mercy, don't we? We love it when people give us mercy. And we oftentimes think, kind of going back to that other one, we deserve it because we've been good. <laughs> we've been to church twice this month. We're, we're good. We got, come on, come on, you owe me a little, come on, a little bit. No. Mercy that really reflects God's character is a mercy that costs us when we show someone else mercy. And that's why it's so hard to give, isn't it? Because we don't want it to cost us. Because we deserve justice. I want justice, right? I mean, every time I drive down the road, I want justice for everybody around me because they're a bunch of clowns that know how to drive around here, okay? And I want justice. Where is that cop? Did you see that? Can you believe that? Instead of mercy, forgive them, and pray for them. Yeah, that rarely happens in my car needs to happen, right? That's mercy. Now, they don't know, at least when I don't use sign language, they don't know, but you know what I mean, right? We all know this. It happens at work. It happens at home. It happens with people who are really close to us, and it happens with strangers. It happens a lot. We have an opportunity to pour out mercy in the name of Jesus, and we hold back. I'm so glad he didn't hold back. I'll add this, too, just to let you know how much I appreciate the many, many times people in this church have shown me mercy, personally. When you're in this role, you are under, everybody sees, and you do stuff, it's just stupid sometimes, or, or wrong, or bad, or you do it poorly, or whatever, and so many times you all, you all have shown grace and mercy, not just to me, or to each other, to other leaders in this church, and I just want to applaud that. I just want to say thank you. That's God working through you but you cooperating with him. And I just want to say thank you for that. It's just such a blessing. I, I appreciate that. More than you know. Blessed are the merciful, we said, or will they will be shown mercy. That's the blessing. You will be shown or have been shown mercy. Okay, whether it happens in the past or in the future, it's as good as done. That's why it's there. The next one is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And this isn't see God visually, although I think that day's coming but see God as in know him, like really know him. And if you have come to him and part of his kingdom, then you do know him. And you're learning to hear his voice, and you're learning to recognize it, kind of like um, 
uh, I don't know if it, I don't know how, if it works this way anymore because I don't know, if, do teenagers talk on the phone anymore? But back in the day, back in the old days when we had cords on our phone and they were on the wall and you'd had to convince your parents, I need a 20-foot phone cord so I can pull it all the way to my room, close the door so you can't hear our two-hour conversation, guy, girl, on the phone. I never did that. All right, I'm in church. I did. Okay, so... Um, Pure in heart, they will see God. It's, you remember that when you're early in the relationship, you pick up the phone, they call or you call, and you don't know each other's voice. You don't recognize the voice. But it doesn't take long when you spend hours on the phone to recognize that voice, right? How, how's that? Why is that? It's because you spend hours on the phone listening to them talk about things that really don't matter. <laughs> but I just want to hear your voice. Pure in heart. The heart is... In, in Western culture, the heart is the seat of our feelings, right? We say, you know, put your heart into it, feel like it, passion, all this, yeah. But in the Bible, it's more than that. It includes the passions and the feelings, but it also includes your thought life and your will, the will that you use, what you choose to do and not do. So it's really the seat of your innermost being, the heart. That's what it's referring to. So when it talks about a pure heart, it's basically saying, you being pure on the inside, not just on the outside, right? The religious leaders, they like to just like, make sure you wash your hands before you didn't. You know, it's like a religious thing. It's like, well, that's not much has changed. <laughs> My mom was very much about washing her hands before dinner. Hey, mom, <laughs> she is watching. Okay, so you know what I'm saying? Clean on the outside, they were all about that religiously, but clean on the inside is what Jesus goes for here. It's not that the outside doesn't matter, but the inside matters the most. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, that tells you it's pretty important, right? When it says above all else, okay, that means there's nothing above this. Above all else, guard your heart. Sentries at the door of your heart. That means you're guarding your feelings, your emotions, you're guarding your mind and your thoughts, that means you're guarding your, your decision-making process and you're letting them all work together. You're not living by feelings. That is not a recipe for a good life, okay? You're thinking, but you're not ignoring your feelings, and you're making sure that you're making decisions that you really wanna make, because your life is the sum of your decisions, whether you make good ones or bad ones. When we guard our heart, he says the reason is because it's the wellspring of life. Everything in life, in my life, flows from my heart. It is the wellspring of life. Everything I think, say, and do flows from the condition of my heart. Jesus said it this way. We speak out of the overflow of our heart. So if you have vile language, then that tells something to people around you something about what's in here. If you tell dirty jokes, if you tell racial slurs, if you, if you speak with anger or vitriol or bitterness or uh, con contempt or uh, self-pity or all these things are the overflow of what's going on in your heart temper, impatience, all of those things, they come out, right? We, we verbalize these things, especially when it's a pattern that has been there for a long time. We quit keeping it in our minds and it starts to come. I mean, try to drive to work and promise yourself you're not going to say anything out loud. I don't care who's, that there's no one in the car. It doesn't matter and they can't hear you. But you know, some of you know, because we're in the same club, that when you drive, you talk. To people, not just to God, okay? I do talk to him too about drivers. But you know what I'm saying, right? And it's like, there was a time when I didn't say it out loud. 
There was a time when I just thought it. So what is that saying? That's a progression. Okay? Just like murder, it starts here, and you hate somebody. But it, if you let it progress, you end up with a body. That's why James says it gives birth to sin and gives birth to death. This is a big deal, pure heart. Is your heart, what's your heart like? And don't say it out loud. I don't want to hear, but God knows and you know, and, and you can do something about it. But you, you need to go here. If you know God, then he, you know he can clean your heart like that. You can walk out of here with a, a white, a, a, a pure heart. But you have to go back to that poor in spirit thing and humble yourself. Uh, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called children of God. This is not a pacifist. This is not somebody who's just peaceful. This is a maker of peace, a reconciler, someone who actively works for peace, but not just peace as in the absence of conflict. Uh, no war, we must have peace. No fighting in the family, we must have peace. Oh, no, it's under the surface. It's there. You ever heard of the expression, I got to tiptoe around that person? There's no peace there. Peacemaker is someone who actively works for this peace. In the, um, the, the Hebrew word is shalom, right? It's this completeness, this wholeness, this health. And it's not just a physical health, it's a spiritual health. It's, and you, if you've ever felt that kind of peace, you know when you don't have it. Paul describes it in, in Philippians 4, 7 as the peace that surpasses all understanding. He says that when, we, when we, we push back against anxiety and worry, well, I'll just say the verse, do not be anxious about anything. Sounds like a command to me. Tell me not to worry, Paul. Well, who do you think you are? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. That's what you're mad about, worried about, anxious about. And it says that when you do that, again, with gratitude, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart. Oh, we need that. Guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. We need to guard our hearts. There's the New Testament. I didn't even pick up on that until just now. Isn't that cool? Peacemaker. Are you a peacemaker or you stir the pot? When things happen at the office, were you the instigator? I didn't say, did you get caught? What about at home? What about with your friends? What about online? Ooh, I'm sorry, I just stepped on something there. Okay, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, I don't know if you picked up on this, but the verse 3 and verse 10 are different in the way they're worded, and they also both point to the kingdom of heaven. They say is the kingdom of heaven as instead of will be. Okay, and I just think that just says this is now. You can have this now, this kingdom of heaven, citizen that you are becoming. This you can have. Okay, and then it talks about the righteous. We've already talked about righteousness, right relationship with God, leads to right relationships with people, leads to right living and culture around the corner, around the world. Okay, so when it says, blessed are those who are persecuted, what's persecution? It's when people come after you and because they don't like what you're saying, they don't like what you're doing, they don't like how you're living, okay? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. 
because of their, their living, speaking righteousness into the lives of other people, into their culture, into their city, into their family, into their friends. Right? You, you do this. You try to do this at Thanksgiving with your family. That doesn't usually go over very well. Oh, let's just talk about politics because that sounds safer than trying to talk about being at peace with one another. And I sort of joke, but some of you are like, no, that's actually pretty close. Thanksgiving. Oh, my goodness. Don't get me started. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's, it comes with it. When you and I are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we will live like we've just read. We will be poor in spirit. We will be mourning sin. We will be meek. We will be hungry and thirsting for righteousness. We will be merciful. We will be pure in heart. We will be peacemakers. And people will hate you because of it. And they will persecute you and your family because of it. Are you signing up for that? Are you okay with that? Because the volume of your complaints sometimes says otherwise, and mine, right? But he's, he's like, no, 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 this is who we are. This is why the Bible says, come and follow me, but count the cost before you do. Because it's free to receive salvation, but it is costly to follow Jesus in this world. And it could result in the same thing it did for Jesus. He did all this, and what did it get him? The cross. Anyone who comes after me must first deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Luke 9, 23. Sounds like our description. Okay? So when you say, I'm willing to follow Jesus and, and I'm willing to live for him, I ask the question, are you willing to die for him? Because that's under the canopy of living for him. It means living for him so fully that if they come for you, you will still live for him until you can't any longer, until they take that life, which you get back. Because remember the acorn. You've already died if you're in the kingdom. You have already died, and therefore you have life that is coming, as he says here over and over. Bless you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That's the key. If I was to have the time, I would draw out the chiasm. The point of the chiasm is because of me. And what this says is this all flows to Jesus both the whole 12 verses, but also verses 11 and 12. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, is your reward in heaven, is, not will be, is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you because of me. The persecution that, is, that leads to this blessing is the persecution that comes because of righteousness, in, and, and that righteousness is under the banner of Jesus. How we doing? I feel like I've been to the woodshed. You think I don't, I'm not in front of this? I'm absolutely in front of this. I am, I'm bleeding. I feel like, oh, I've been really, and yet the grace of God and the mercy of God, right? It is ours in Christ Jesus. But if you don't have that, then you don't know that. If you don't have, if you haven't received the mercy of God, you've got no mercy to give, right? So the question is, do we believe it always comes back to that, doesn't it? It always comes back to, do I believe? And that crisis of faith is important because it's where we clarify what we think is right and real. And we live accordingly or not, depending on how we come down on that issue. How do we get there? How do I receive and, and, and manifest these blessings in the kingdom? How do they become real for me if you've never received them? You die to self. How do I do that? Don't give me a gun, right? It's not about that. It's more profound than dying at the point of a gun. 
because you have a choice and it's a daily choice to die to my agenda, to die to my dreams, to die to my preferences, my rights, Christians. We do not, we have American rights, but we lay them on the altar, right? We lay it all on the altar and we say, here am I. I have nothing to offer. I deserve nothing of your grace and mercy. I just, just get me in the kingdom by the skin of my teeth. I'm good with that. And he's like, oh, I have so much more for you than that. And that's just, the, that's just the cliff notes. How do I get that? I surrender. Spirit of poverty, of poor in spirit, I surrender all to him. That's how. And you just tell him. We can be singing a song. We can be doing the Lord's Supper. You don't have to, you don't have to put on your spiritual cape. You don't have to, you know, dance in the aisle. You don't have to come up here and take it. You just tell him, I want into the kingdom and I need you to get me in because I can't get in on my own. There's no doorknob on the outside for me. You've got to let me in. And like the prodigal father waiting for his son, looking at the horizon, searching the horizon day after day after day, and he sees a cloud of, of smoke, and he sees the footsteps, and he sees a man in the distance, and he knows that, he knows that walk. And he, he girds his loins, whatever that means, and he runs to his son, which no Jewish man would ever have done in that culture. In that culture, it was said Jewish men wouldn't even run to their house if it was on fire. That's how proud. This man humbled himself and ran to his son and embraced him. And as his son is confessing sin and admitting that all he's worthy to be is a servant in the household, he's like, crank up the party. My son is alive. He's been lost and he has been found. And that's the compassion of God and the mercy of God that's available to anyone who comes and asks. Let's pray. Lord God, we don't deserve that. But you're the father on the porch. And we're the arrogant son who left. Tried to do life on our own terms. And realized we aren't so good at that. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us do the one thing we are so poor at. And that is humble ourselves. And admit that we need you. And admit that we have nothing to offer you that is worth anything to you. And yet we need your mercy. The justice has been covered. You've already sent your son to the cross. Lord, help us receive this mercy and grace that is available to us through Jesus Christ. It is a gift. We receive that gift. May we receive it humbly, graciously, gratefully, in such a way that it would reorient our whole perspective on all of our life from this day forward. Lord, we pray you would change our marriage, that you would change our, our future, that you would change our, our job situation, that you would change our, 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 the struggles, our health situations, all these things. But yet, Lord, may we be so content at the same time that to know you is enough, that we would also willingly accept all of those things as they are if we get you. Help us figure this out. Help us to navigate these waters. They are treacherous, but you are safe. You are the rock that doesn't get moved by the storm. May we build our house on that rock that is Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.